So there I was, in the, the second shift ever in my job at the co-op, around the corner from where I lived, uh, 16 years of age, and I was a bit bored, it was early in the morning, and I was just looking around at the checkout, and I saw this kind of plastic thing under the, the counter, and I was just pressing it and messing around with it, because I had this red front. I thought it was something that you used to take, you know, those plastic cases off the DVDs. And nothing was happening, so I thought, I don't know what this is. Until 15 minutes later, the police come through the door of the car, and they, they run, well, they sort of walk into the office, go and speak to the manager, and they come out to me and they say, did you press the panic alarm that's, you know, sitting there under the counter? You can just imagine a kind of rabbit in the headlights, kind of everyone staring at me, and I just say, uh, no, no, it wasn't me, I don't know, don't know what that's about, definitely wasn't me. I completely denied it. I don't know what you would have done in that situation. I think I was just panicking because you know I didn't want to lose my job. Uh, they let me off. Yeah, I, I'm sure they knew it was me, but uh, they never said anything, and obviously I never pressed it again. You know, my parents taught me to be honest, but when the moment came, in that moment of kind of fear and panic, I I lied. Now, okay, you know, maybe that's a reasonably trivial example. But it does lead to perhaps a deeper question which is, what would I do if actually speaking the truth about Jesus is going to cost me a lot? Maybe you've been in that situation, maybe you've had to answer that question for yourself. How did you react if you did? Maybe it's something you need to think about. This passage this evening is going to get us thinking about that question. How would we react? What would we do in that situation? If you were here last week, we were kind of left on a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, in chapter 14, verse 14, uh, well, the whole of chapter 14 we were looking at, up to verse 43. We've seen that Jesus was in Jerusalem in the run-up to, to, to what was about to happen to him. He knows what's to come. He celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He predicts that everyone is going to fall away from him. And actually, we focused on the passage where he was in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and prayed in deep distress in deep anguish, and yet at the same time trusted his father, trusted his father's plan, saying, not my will, but yours be done. He sought the father's strength for what was to come. Meanwhile, the disciples were asleep. They were exhausted, they were weak, but they didn't really understand what was about to happen. Um, no doubt it was a big shock. Let's just, let's just remind ourselves to get, get into the passage. Mark 14, verse 41, just before... Our passage today, it says, Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. We were left on that, that cliffhanger. So let's continue into this week's passage. Let's see what happens next. We're going to follow through the whole story this time uh, and consider what it teaches us uh, and how it might challenge us today. My first point is this. Everyone deserves Jesus. Everyone deserves Jesus. Even as he's speaking, Judas comes around the corner and he's not alone. He's got this crowd uh, of people with him. They're armed and dangerous. It's interesting to see how he's described, isn't it? You see, he's called one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. One of Jesus' closest friends and followers is leading this group. And then verse 44 is called the betrayer. The betrayer. 
That's why he's here. He's here to betray Jesus with the kids. Just think about that. It's normally a sign of welcome, of hospitality. Here it's the opposite. It's, it's quite literally a kiss of death. Jesus is arrested. He's seized by the crowds. I don't think we know for certain why Judas chooses to betray Jesus. But it's suggestive that, that earlier in chapter 14, if you look at verses 1 through to 11, this is the story of the woman coming and breaking the jar of expensive perfume and anointing Jesus. And you look at that, and you look at the people kind of outraged at the waste of this costly, costly thing that's happened. And then it says in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to him. I wonder if there's just a connection there. That, that something about this action that's happened, it was almost the last straw for Judas. And he goes off to betray Jesus. In John 12, uh, verse 6, it talks about how Judas used to steal money from the disciples' kind of funds. And you say, maybe in his heart there was, you know, money was everything to him. He had never understood something differently. That, that might be what then led him to, to betray Jesus. Jesus is expecting it. But he still challenges them. Do you see that in verse 48? He says, am I leading a rebellion? Said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. He says, what are you doing? Why have you come in darkness, in this kind of secret way to arrest me? Why have you got these weapons? I've been there in the temple. You could have come and arrested me at any time you like. It's like he's making the point. Look at the contrast here. I'm, I'm open. I'm transparent to what I'm teaching and what I'm doing. I'm teaching in public. Why are you coming in this secret, dark way? He says, well, it's so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. And we know, actually, that, that many scriptures are about to be fulfilled as he goes into his trial and his execution. Is there any particular one in focus here? Well, maybe just a few verses back, if you look at verse 27. He says, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherds, and the sheep will be scattered. I wonder if that's the verse in mind here, because that's exactly what happens next. Do you see that? Everyone deserts him. Verse 15, everyone deserts him and fled. It's pretty stark, isn't it? You've got Jesus' disciples, his followers, those who have been with him for so long. Those who said literally a few minutes ago they would never leave him. And they can't get away quick enough. They're running through the olive trees, just running for their lives. As soon as the danger approaches, they've got him. We've got this strange account of the, the naked man running away. Why is that included? Well, well some say, well, maybe that's the, the author himself, that, that's Mark, kind of just writing down what happened to him. But we don't know for certain that the point is actually the emphasis on just how desperate they are to get away. He's been seized by the, the guards, he, he whips off his tunic and he runs off into the garden naked because he doesn't want to be caught. He'd rather do that than you know, stand with Jesus. They have no strength, they, they think only of themselves in that moment, which means that what Jesus is about to face, he will face alone. Or will he? There is a glimmer of hope here, isn't there? If you look at verse 54, Peter hasn't gone too far. 
Yeah, he'd run off, but actually he's almost circled around and he follows the crowd back uh, to the chief priests. Is there a glimmer of hope because he comes to somehow offer support and help to his lords? We'll find out in a minute. But meanwhile, we get to the second point in the passage where we see this. We see that Jesus declares the truth surrounded by opposition. Jesus declares the truth surrounded by opposition. The crowd take him off to the Sanhedrin, this council of the priests and the teachers of the law. But it's, it's never really meant to be a fair trial. You've got this secret middle of the night gathering. And yeah, if you look at verse 55, you see what they're trying to do. It says they were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. They did not find any. But that's what they're doing. You know, they're not looking to, to, to judge him fairly, they're looking for a way to kill him. And yet they, they're witnesses, these star witnesses that they've kind of called together in the middle of the night. They can't get their act together. They can't agree on what they're falsely accusing Jesus of. And all through this, Jesus remains silent. It's so significant, isn't it, this, this silence. The chief priest says, well, why aren't you defending yourself? Why aren't you answering? Especially if you've got all these inconsistencies. Surely you think, well, Jesus could point them out. Well, again, we, we, we go to the Old Testament and we read in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The scriptures are being fulfilled again. Jesus remains silent before his accusers. He knows his trial is rigged. He knows what's coming. He knows there's bigger things kind of going on around this. He knows that he's about to bear the weight of sin on his shoulders. He's, he's facing the judgment of his father. But you see, there is one question that leads to a response. Quite an amazing thing here. Verse, the middle of verse 61. The high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is a kind of heart-stopping moment, a moment of just, wow. I mean, all the way through the gospel, you kind of, you get hints of, of who Jesus is. Some people realize, some people know, but he never kind of very explicitly says that to his opponents. And now here he is saying, look, this is directly, this is who I am. I am coming now, and I will have the ultimate victory. A really bold moment, bold statements. Again, we go to the Old Testament, we realise he's looking, he's referring to, to Daniel chapter 7, the prophecy of the Son of Man coming in glory, coming in power and authority to, to kind of take over his everlasting kingdom. Jesus is speaking of this. Isn't that amazing just to, to call that to mind? When he's surrounded by his enemies, he's on his own, and yet somehow he's standing firm, faithful to his father, confident in the plans that are being carried out, confident in what's to come. Confident of the ultimate victory. And yet, that's the last straw for the chief priest. You see what happens? He tears his robes in outrage, in judgments, accusing Jesus of blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of Man, claiming to be this. That is a, an outrageous statement. So they condemn him to death. They abuse him physically, they spit on him, they blindfold him, they beat him. They mock him. They say, prophesy. 
not realizing that Jesus has prophesied this very moment. That's why Jesus is standing there taking this. Because he knew it was coming. He knew he had to face this. But you couldn't get a bigger difference, could you, between Jesus and the disciples. The disciples kind of knowing who Jesus was, but even so they flee the scene. And Jesus remains there alone, faithful to the end. Revealing himself as, as God's son. Facing the abuse and the, the anger of the, the, the enemies and the religious leaders that, that wanted him dead. Really stark difference. But remember, Peter is outside, isn't he? He's outside. While this has been going on inside, going on inside, sorry, what's he been up to? Has he been, you know, trying to get inside, trying to help, to help his lords? Sadly not. We see in our next section that actually Peter fails Jesus. Peter fails Jesus. As Jesus is interrogated, he's outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire kind of with the other guards and the other people there, kind of keeping a bit of a low profile. And this servant girl, the high priest, comes along. This, this, this girl would have been of very little status, of little importance. And yet she, she sees something familiar about Peter. It's like, I've seen you before somewhere. You were with Jesus. You were in, maybe she saw him in the temple or somewhere like that. You were with Jesus. Let's read what happened in verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And went out to the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word. Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, he will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Remember last week I pointed out the significance of, of threes in the book of Mark. You know something as big as happening when you see three things. And, and here the emphasis is on Peter's just complete and utter failure. Three times he's asked and three times he denies Jesus. And while Jesus is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, all of these, these important people, Peter is afraid of this servant girl, afraid of the people on the outskirts, and that's who he denies Jesus to. He just sort of slowly backs away, you see that, towards the entrance. She calls to the others, who also challenge him. He denies it again. They challenge him further. They, they know he's from Galilee, probably because of his accents. And then it gets really serious. He calls these curses down. He swears to them. I guess the equivalent today might be something of him, what he would have said would be something like, go to hell. Go to hell for accusing me of this. I swear on my life, I do not know Jesus. Really strong. Really an awful way to deny Jesus. Again, maybe we, we would put our, uh, we could see ourselves in Peter's shoes here, thinking, actually, would I do the same? Surrounded by kind of big burly guards and supporters of the, the, the priests, it would be very easy to 
It was my Jesus to, to protect myself. But it's that moment, isn't it, that the cock crows, and it's like it's like lightning coming down and striking uh, Peter's heart. He is. It's the, the, the panic of the moment. Maybe it, it just clears, and he remembers. He's, he remembers what Jesus said to him in verse thirty. Down before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. He breaks down, he weeps, he has cut to the heart as the reality of his situation is revealed. Yeah, he's confident in that moment when he's surrounded by his friends with Jesus, but his sin is revealed in the real test, his, his pride, his fear for his own life. He denies Jesus. He hasn't been perhaps the hope that we had hoped for, has he? We leave him weeping, we leave him broken. As the scene changes back to Jesus, the last thing we see in this is this, that Jesus faces his judgments. Jesus faces his judgments. He has been deemed worthy of death. And the problem is, of course, that, that only the Roman occupiers could kind of carry out that sentence. They had to take him to Pilate, take him to the governor, uh, the Roman governor. The first question Pilate asked him kind of reveals their accusations. See what he says. He says, "Are you the king of the Jews?" Now, the, the, the high priest they knew that Pilate probably wasn't that fussed about their accusations of blasphemy or their kind of theological concerns about the Messiah. They make the case that Jesus is claiming royal authority. He is, this man says he's the king of the Jews. That would be a problem for Pilate if this guy's going to cause some trouble. Pilate just wants to keep the peace. But Jesus' response is so interesting. You see what he says? You have said so. You have said so. It's kind of always putting the question back to, to Pilate. It's not saying a definite yes or a definite no. It's kind of suggesting, it's saying, look, you have said this. It's almost saying you would do well to consider this question yourself, Pilate. Have you thought about this? Whether I am or not. You need to think about that. But then Jesus is silent again. The silence, as the accusations mount up, Jesus says nothing. We know why, don't we? We know why we've seen already. But Pilate is just as amazed uh, as the chief priest that Jesus makes no defence for himself. Maybe that's the first time he's ever come across uh, a prisoner that, that just stands silent, that doesn't protest. Well, Pilate knows there is a way for him to be released. We've got this custom of releasing a prisoner at the time of the Passover. And surely Pilate thinks, well, look, I know this man is, is innocent. I know he's been arrested just because the chief priests don't like him. Surely he's going to be a popular guy to release. Let's see what happens in verse 6 of chapter 15. Now it was the, the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. No, it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowds, Pilate released Barabbas to them. 
he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. You see another pattern of three here in these verses. Three questions from Pilate to the crowd. And three times the crowd, instead of wanting Jesus to be released, they cry for Barabbas, they cry for this murdering insurrectionist. Stirred up by the chief priests, they cry for crucifixion. Crucify him. And Pilate asks why, he knows this man doesn't deserve this. But the crowd wins over at the end of the day. Is that showing Pilate's weakness? Maybe. But ultimately, Pilate perhaps is just being pragmatic. He doesn't want the hassle of a riot. He doesn't want complaints about him going back to Rome if the chief priest can write to the, um, to the, the emperor. But he's not really interested in justice. He doesn't really care. He just wants to kind of stay in people's good books, stay head politically. And so the logic, maybe, I don't think we can argue with, can we? Surely the death of one, one man that the crowd seems to hate is much better than a riot at the city's kind of busiest time of year. You know, satisfying the crowd, that's a win for, for Pilate. And it's an awful reality, isn't it? Just reading it, that final verse, verse 15, he released Barabbas to them, he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Flogging would have been brutal. Jesus would have been left in agony and bleeding as they forced him towards the cross. What kept Jesus there in that moment? Faithful in the midst of this awful persecution, this awful suffering. What kept him there? It was his, his commitment to save his people. It was his love for them. He was faithful to the end so that weak sinners like you and me could go free. We could be saved. It was so that his friends who fled in the darkness, who deserted him, so that they could be with him forever. We just, I think we just need to pause, don't we, and take a moment to reflect on this reality, that the Son of God, the King of all, stood there in our place, suffered in our place, so that we could be free, we could be loved by God forever. Let's just pause, let's just pray, and thank God for that reality. Lord, we thank you so much for your, your the, the deep riches of your love. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for standing there and bearing the weight of sin so that we could go free. Lord, please deepen our understanding of this. Help us grasp it more clearly. Help us rejoice in, in, in all that you've done for us. Amen. There's a kind of beautiful irony in this moment. As Barabbas goes free, you've got the innocent suffering and the guilty one walking out the door. He was involved in political revolution. He says he was involved in murder, clearly undeserving of being freed. But actually, when you stop and think about it, we realise that Barabbas is a picture of, of every one of us. We go free despite our sin because Jesus was not freed, because Jesus was sent to the cross in our place. We might judge Barabbas really harshly, this disgusting sinner. But actually, we realize we're, we'd be in exactly the same boat if our hearts had been revealed, you know, we, we, we deserve judgments. 
We don't deserve the freedom we've been given in Jesus. If we trust in him. And we don't know what Barabbas did. It would be wonderful to know, wouldn't it, whether he, well, did he just go back to his own old ways? Maybe he followed the crowd. Maybe he saw what happened to Jesus and, and wondered. Maybe he was changed by this new freedom he found. We don't know. What we do know is that we should be changed by this reality, the reality of our freedom in Christ. And so what should it look like for us? How should we be changed with this reality? Well, one key way we we can think about from this passage is our witness to Jesus when it's hard. It's my final question for us this, this, this afternoon is this. How will we respond when it's hard to follow Christ? How will we respond when it's hard to follow Christ? You think back to Peter uh, and the other disciples, how they flee for the hills in that moment. Peter strongly denied knowing Jesus from that moment. Okay. Leaves a question for us. How will we react? Will we deny Jesus when we're up against the wall? Will I? The reality is it, that, that the world around us is moving further and further away from any respect for, for, for Christians, for their faith, any respect for Jesus, he's either ignored or just treated like a joke. And what this means is that, that we can expect to, to come under increasing pressure to compromise our faith in order to, to fit in with our society, in order to have an easy life. I wonder if, you know, how, how we would feel if, if our neighbours, I reckon our neighbours would be disgusted if they knew our stance, someone say abortion. People at work, you, you could end up facing a disciplinary hearing, couldn't you? If you, you offer to pray for someone, maybe you've got friends and family that just find the idea of us claiming that, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, they just find that intolerable. There are many ways we might come under pressure to kind of compromise. Will you stand boldly for, for Jesus when it's your job on the line? Or your house? Or your children? What's it going to take for you to say, actually, enough's enough. I'm not going to follow Jesus now. I'm going to, going to go and I'm going to give in. Is there anything that you're holding on to too tightly? I know I had to search my own heart as I was preparing this. Many things in my own heart that I need to address. Let's be honest, if it's left to us, left to us in our own strength, we would crumble just like the disciples, wouldn't we? We'd be out the door before, before we knew it. It wouldn't take much for us to deny Jesus. We left Peter in tears. And I think that's a good sign that he was so broken by this. His sorrow was genuine and later we see him restored and forgiven by Jesus. But our faith should be rooted in sorrow like Peter's. Our sins are many. Our sin is great. We deserve death. Are we sorry? Are we sorry about that? Are we convicted about the depths of our sin? When we when we get when we realise that, that's when we reach out to Jesus, and that's when we see His great love, His great mercy, His forgiveness for us. We find the hope and love that we do not deserve. We're given the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in us and gives us the power to stand firm for Jesus. We don't have time now, but but let me encourage you sometime this week to go to Acts chapter 4 and 
have a look at the difference it makes to Peter. It is amazing. No more kind of cowering in the shadows, no more denying Jesus. In fact, nothing can stop him proclaiming Jesus. And in Acts 4, he ends up in front of the same people, in front of the Sanhedrin that, that, that you know he was so afraid of before. And he stands firm and he proclaims Christ. Even with threat of prison and threat of death, he says, I can't do anything else. Nothing can stop me talking about my Saviour. He is alive and he has changed my life. It's wonderful to go and read and it's so encouraging to see. If If that can happen for Peter, that can happen for us. The same thing happened with the Apostle Paul. This great persecutor of Christians is saved by Jesus. And he says this in Philippians 3 verse 8. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Is that the perspective we have this afternoon? That Christ is worth so much to us that nothing else matters, that the surpassing worth, nothing is greater than knowing Jesus. Is that, have we got that in our hearts and our minds? So that when we are called to stand up for Jesus, when we're called in that moment, we know it's going to be difficult, we know it's going to be really costly. We're ready to stand up. But what do we do practically in that moment when we are, you know, put on the spot? We must pray. We must pray. We must seek his strength in that moment. We must remember that, that we are secure in him and that enables us to step out in faith even at great cost. Maybe it feels impossible to you. You think, I could never do that. And actually, it's only in that moment that that God will provide you with the strength to to stand firm. I've heard many testimonies of that being the case. That until the time comes, you don't realise that he will give you the strength to do it. I've had a friend uh, in my home church in Stevenage who was asked to, to lie as part of his work. Ironic, after me lying in the, in the co-op, of course. But he was asked to kind of, you know, phone people up and basically lie about the product he was selling. And he refused, and he quit his job and said, I'm not going to compromise on this. He took that costly decision. He stepped out in faith. I thought, that's amazing. It'd be so easy to, to sort of justify it. When it oh, it's only a small lie, it's not a big deal. I need this job. He stood firm. He, he, he put Jesus first. So be encouraged that, that it is possible, actually, it is possible to stand for Christ in our culture today. But what happens when we don't? What happens when we fail? What happens when we let our Lord down? We need to come back to the cross, don't we, and remember all that he's done for us, remember his kindness, his faithfulness, so that even when we fail him, he's there to pick us up, he's there to restore us and give us strength to, to, to keep going, to press on, to stand firm the next time. Let me encourage you to to come to Jesus today, to find that that hope and that strength and that boldness to live in this week. If you're not a believer here this afternoon, maybe thinking, well, why on earth would I bother becoming a Christian if it's going to be costly, if it's going to be, if it's going to cause pain and suffering, why would I bother doing that? Well, think again about what happened with the disciples. What could change these fearful men into powerful preachers that went to their death confident in their lords? 
They knew Jesus was alive. They knew that he had saved them. And that reality changed everything for them. It could be the same for you. Whether you're feeling insecure, maybe feeling like you've lost hope, because everything just it's like sinking sand. You try and put your put your hope in something and it just falls away and it leaves you wanting more. You need to come to Christ. He is a solid rock, a firm foundation. And when you realise that, that security that you have in him, you realise that oh, actually there's nothing worth holding on to. There's no cost too great for this wonderful salvation. So let me encourage you, if you're thinking about these things, come and ask me some questions. Come and challenge me about this. Come and find certain hope in Jesus. I hope it's been encouraging to look at this passage this evening. I hope it's been good to look at the faithfulness of Jesus and frankly the, the weakness and the failure of the disciples. It's encouraging to see their restoration and their forgiveness and the strength they're given later. We're gonna, I'm going to finish by just reading a few verses from the book of Hebrews that should hopefully fuel our prayers uh, as, we, as we respond to this. Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Let's, let's read this. I'll read this and I want to read it prayerfully. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Father, we, we are weary, we are weak, we are sinful. Would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? Would you help us remember how he endured such suffering and such opposition in our place, so that we can be filled with hope and 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 love and forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for, for this. And would you help us, Lord, whether it's tomorrow or further away, if we're asked to stand firm for Christ, if we're, we're challenged in some costly way, would you help us not to deny our Saviour? Would you help us to stand firm in your strength, by your power, in Jesus' name.